science communication, the way how you approach to the communities, to in-reach for the academia, but also outreach. It shows like if you are not able to explain clearly your research in a way like children or civil society understand, you're not gonna get support from policymakers because they don't understand. You're not gonna get support from people. You're not gonna get funding to do your research. You need to demonstrate how important STEAM work is by be able to communicate in a way social sciences do. And you need to change that uh, projection to them in a way they will understand. Hi there, you're listening to the podcast What Are You Going To Do With That? of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and as your host and as a PhD candidate, I chat with early career researchers about their academic journey, and I hope to get some advice for my own journey. Today, I'm talking with Ana Cristina Vasquez Vargas, who went from anthropology to international law and currently does research in STEM. She didn't only move fields, but also countries, namely from Costa Rica to China, where she is currently doing her PhD in marine sciences at Tongji University in Shanghai. Before we unravel Anna's interesting journey, I'd like to invite you all to check out our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to learn more about our guests and to connect with peers. For more PhD advice, take a look at our YouTube channel that is linked to the blog on our website. All right, let's get back to Anna and properly introduce you to her. Anna Cristina Vasquez Vargas started out with a BA in Anthropology at the University of Costa Rica. She then continued with an MA in International Law and Human Rights at the UN-mandated University for Peace, also in Costa Rica, for which she wrote a thesis on human remains identification of missing persons as a human right, taking Guatemala as a case study. She has then worked for a while as a resilience manager, where she focused on capacity building for disaster response, recovery and risk management, she worked on the Cuban humanitarian crisis and also with the Red Cross on strengthening community resilience to climate change. And at the same time, she was also affiliated with the National Agency for Child Affairs and was a consultant for both environmental affairs, youth and family planning. But then in 2019, Anna left all of that behind and became a visiting scholar at UNEP Tongji University's Institute for Environmental Development in Shanghai. She was a research fellow for the Master Program in Environmental Management and Sustainable Development before starting her PhD in Marine Sciences. The title of her thesis is Copper Isotopic Composition and its Environmental Indication in the Changyang or the Yangtze River. I hope I am pronouncing that somewhat right. Yeah. Anna has received... Thank you. <laughs> Anna has received grants and travel grants for her research, and she goes on field trips every now and then, which is why I'm very glad that she found some time in between her trips to chat with me. So, welcome to our show, Anna. How are you doing? Hi, I'm very fine. I'm very good, thank you. Happy to hear and happy to have you with us. Before I'm going to ask you a few questions, I'm going to pour myself my regular drink, Amaretto. And what are you having? I'm having some Costa Rican coffee. Mmm, that sounds good. And yeah. the cup is very nice. Thank you. 
It's um, Dia de los Muertos Cup. It was hard to get, but I got it. I love it. <laughs> Where did you get it? Back home or in China? Uh, no, I got it in China, but I needed enough for my coffee. So it's pretty much a one liter cup. Wow. Very nice. Let's cheer to that. Let's Cheers. Cheer. Cheers. Okay. So here come my usual short questions to kick off. And the first one is, how does your day start? Uh, my day starts fighting with myself because I don't want to get up. <laughs> oh, I'm not, a, yeah, I'm not a, like a big morning person. So I have to get up very early to take the bus from my campus to the university lab that it's 80 kilometers distance. This is still in Shanghai, but uh, it's far away. So it can take like from one hour and a half to two hours every day. And wow. then, yeah, after I finish, it's again like two more hours on the way back. So long days, long day. And that's why I need a lot of coffee. <laughs> I can see that. And it is a large cup. So that's good. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a struggle, uh, but you do like what you're doing. So you do get out of bed anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, I just love uh, to sleep. That's one of my problems. But that's also like part of my self-care. I try to focus and like I try to focus mostly in like keeping my times. And sleeping is a very important part of it to refresh and relax. But... Still, it's so hard to wake up in the morning for uh, somebody that loves sleep. Well, I'm glad glad that you made it this morning. Now, my second question is, if you could direct your own movie, what kind of movie would it be? A comedy, a thriller, action, something else? Mm, I think it will be more like a, a thriller, but science fiction. Okay. And it will have zombies and dinosaurs. Yeah. You can imagine like... Together? Yes. Dinosaur, rap- like nice. zombie raptors, that will be great. Well, it will be like very complicated to survive, but <laughs> for me it will be like so exciting. Sounds like you thought about this before. Yeah. I don't know. I think I just <laughs> love uh, the unexpected. And also I have a lot of, uh, I think, uh, well, I give a lot of thought to the surviving an apocalypse. So... Okay. I don't know. I think it's just fun. I watch too much horror movies, I guess. <laughs> well, it would make you very creative. Yeah. Okay. Another question I have is, what hobby would you like to pick up, up if you'd actually have time for it? So if time wasn't an issue, would you like maybe to learn how to play an instrument or do another sports or something like arts and crafts? Uh, I think I would love to like, to start swimming and doing some climbing like so far i have tried but uh, like even in my campus yeah there is some like it's we have a natatorium and we have a climbing uh, wall but i don't have time or there is like so many people in line that it's really hard to actually be able to do it the way you want to do it right okay but maybe it's something for later in time yeah sure cool All right, well, thanks for sharing that information with us about you personally. Um, But now I'm ready to learn a bit more about your academic journey. 
which has been quite different from most that I've heard so far. So I'm very curious about your story. And let's start at the beginning, because you went from a BA in anthropology to an MA in international law, and that was at different universities, but still in Costa Rica. But why did you switch fields here already? Um, because I always wanted to focus mostly in human rights. And anthropology at the beginning gave me like a very good options, but there was not like a big market to get jobs, unfortunately. So I was focusing mostly in archaeology. Then I got the option to join for the international law in that moment. And it was something that I was very interested in. Like, I always wanted to travel abroad to be part of the humanitarian aid circle, the NGOs. And I always have been volunteering from different projects. So for me, this is like a step closer to the dream that I had. That was moving abroad and like join different um, humanitarian causes. Right. But I think it was a bit idealistic for me at <laughs> that moment and um, from in that time like the work that I did I was like very excited about it I even got the offer to do the PhD in the UPs however I decided to continue working because I felt I had I needed more practical experience hmm. before I was gonna continue my academic degree or that's the decision that I made like by that time. So you already mentioned that you were focusing a little bit even on archaeology mm -hmm. and maybe that's part of the answer of my next question because the topic for your MA thesis was the remains identification of missing persons as a human right. Um, so how did you get to that particular topic? Because I always wanted to focus on uh, forensic anthropology. This work in particular was based, uh, well, focused on the exhumation of some remains, but considering the pH soil conditions in Guatemala, the bones will dissolve very fast. So it was more like, um, how was the process of the grieving and also the conflict that ended 30 years ago, but there was still some sequels in the social he uh, fabric in that moment. Even I visited many indigenous communities, some of those communities are still having like strong wounds in relation to this. So I joined part of, uh, well, some time with the government, some time with another NGO that focused in the identification of human remains, and um, also with the CRC. There is a committee of the International Red Cross. So with this, I wanted to do mostly in identification And I had some background related to this, but mostly like self-taught. And um, yeah, and, and actually during my research, one of the main facts is this, it was during the trials of Efraín Ríos Mot, that was the dictator that actually committed all these crimes. So there was, uh, my research was during the times of the trials. Okay. Guatemala was trying to get the peace of the reconciliation, but there was a lot of denial because the people that are in power now are the same people that committed these crimes in some moment. Is this is 
the same big families or the same uh, economic power that signed the peace agreements but ended still controlling the, the political and economical affairs in Guatemala. Well, well, it sounds like your uh, paper wasn't only interesting, um, I mean, historically, if you look back on the facts and what happens, because that's usually what people think about when you talk about remains, right? Something that happened in the past. Um, but in peace and conflict studies that I also have a background in, we also understand how important it is to then um, uncover what happened exactly so that justice can also be served or be found among the loved ones of these victims and then also move forward, right? Exactly. So I think it was very important work. I'd love to read it, um, but I'll ask you later to send it over. Uh, and then with that uh, paper, you finished the studies and then you started working in the field for a bit. As you said, you even had a chance to maybe already do a PhD, Mm -hmm. But instead, you decided to work. So tell me how that happened. Was it difficult to find a job? Did you like it? Or were there also a lot of things that you didn't like about it? Uh, for me, well, at the beginning, it was very difficult because I became overqualified. Okay. So, and eventually, there was certain family circumstances that gave me near home. So I rather started working as a translator for some time and did some uh, consultancy works so I can stay close to the family. Uh, eventually, I got the opportunity to start working with the National Commission for Emergencies and Disasters Management. So after that, I started focusing more in my environmental sciences. So it was from the environmental impact assessment. Uh, I started working as consultant I even joined the Red Cross in some moments, uh, not only nice. as resilience, but it was mostly like giving the community the tools to adapt to climate change. And especially in, in a country like Costa Rica, where pretty much every day there is a different emergency. And uh, we have a, a huge rainfall, so landslides even in summer. It's a really high possibility, mm -hmm. if not the earthquakes, uh, the problems with the volcanoes. So there is like so many different events. And my work in that moment was to give the, the communities the tools. It's like uh, teach them how the system, the emergency system, where the policies were, so they can, like, even when there was nobody supporting them, they already knew how to work and how to demand okay. for the support of the government. Because sometimes it's like you need to understand the system to actually take advantage of the system because many structures mm -hmm. are still there. And that was mainly my work. And also I was connecting between the different agencies or the civil society and different governmental institutions to also for them to understand that the work has to be joined. It was not just uh, like different aspects, but if they actually start working together, it will be easier. And yeah, it was just mostly like to help the communities to create this network between them, not only with the institutions, but also to them to be able to support. All right, so you actually got to do a job that was very much connected to what you had studied 
And it was very interesting, at least it sounds like that to me, uh, and very important work, of course. Um, and it was a job, so you could have continued with that. But instead, you decided to change your career. So what happened there exactly? I applied to China, and then I realized, like after I was working and I finished my contract, that I got uh, the um, like the invitation. Pretty much, it was I had two weeks to decide if I wanted to come to China and wow. accept this scholarship. So I just did it without thinking about it. It was like, I'm free, I'm young, let's do this. And here in China, I started like working more specifically in environmental engineering. And wait a minute, if it's okay to stop you. Yeah. Um, so you actually came to China before your PhD, right? Yes. The first year. And that was a job? Or was that also a study? It's a fellowship between the Chinese government and the UNESCO. Okay. Yeah. So it was more related to your work. And then you were in China and you were working together with these other institutes. And they were like, oh, Anna is interesting. She's a smart one. No, it's actually, it's like when I, when sometimes in Costa Rica, I applied a few times to China and two other scholarships okay. but it was really hard to get it because Costa Rica is considered like a like high income third world country so pretty much the limitations to get a scholarship especially if you come for a poor and uneducated background like mine because I'm the first one in my family to actually get a university degree cool. so to when I actually came here um I had the option like I applied to this and then when I got it, for me it was like marvelous. It's like, okay, I'm getting a full scholarship. If I don't do this now, I will never have this opportunity. So I just like left everything behind and I came. Um, here I was working, like focusing mostly in environmental sciences. However, it was, it didn't feel like a job. It was just taking some courses. Then I did like the, my first year as fellow in this institute when I realized that sustainable development for China or for that institute particularly it was actually water management no, not even water management it was water treatment or solid waste treatment so okay. if you wanted to focus on a PhD you should do it on water treatment there was like a, and here it happens a lot that you have an idea for your dissertation, for master or PhD, but they assign you to a PA, and that PA will choose whatever they want okay. as your topic. So you're connected to another person's project, really. Exactly. So I look it for other options in another, not university, but in another department. And I found out this scholarship in marine sciences, that there was not much granted to Latin American students, unless you have the support from one Chinese professor. So there was one student from Brazil, she got it for the master's, and I came to meet my PA, and he was, yeah, he was glad to meet. I think I was one of the first Latin American persons he has ever met. Okay. And 
I told him I didn't have the background, but after I met him, he agreed to write a, an invitation letter for me, and I got the scholarship, because the scholarship is granted from Beijing, but if you have the support, especially like an expert like my PA, and he's also the director of the lab, you get like the scholarship like almost directly. Wow, so congratulations. Thank you. That's nice. Yeah, I actually applied to a different PhDs, maybe a little more related to my work in Europe, but uh, I didn't got like reply from them. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, but you did make it now um, in the university where you're at. Uh, and it's interesting that you're saying that you don't actually have a, a, a background too much in it. So did your PA ask you to do more courses that are related to the field? No, like uh, we were planning the initial work we were planning was in my country. It was something very different from him. But he still, he told me like, we have a lot of master students. You have four years to start learning a lot of things that are new. And many people, even with a geology background, when they come to our university, they have to learn how to do it again, right? Okay. So so it worked out because this is very. Yeah, because it gets very specific. In geochemistry, even if you have a geology background, it's very different to for anything that you have done before. Okay, so as someone who's not at all uh, <laughs> in this field or heard too much about it, tell me more about your PhD research. What is it you're focusing on? So, in general, my research focuses in the analysis of three metals, in the river water. Uh, the Chenyang River, uh, in Chinese, it means the long river. Okay. It's one of the longest in the world, it's the third longest in the world. And it has lower caudal than the Amazonas, but still the concentration of copper, or these three metals, is three times higher than the Amazons or any river in the world. So my, the initial question is like, nobody knows why. Okay. So there is a couple of researches specifically in this area, in the Jansi River, that it tries to investigate why this is happening. So it could be related to the weathering, that it could be how the sediments start diluting from the water and it takes time until they arrive into the ocean. So this is called source to sink. In the case of the Chenyang, my analysis goes from the Tibet Plateau, then that is where the river or the, the main tributary starts, and it goes directly to the other side of China. We are talking about a river that crosses China from one side to the other side, wow. from the Himalayas to Shanghai. And it has a lot of uh, tributaries. It has one of the most populated basins in the world. And even like the archaeology reveals, for copper at least, the native, well, I will be like the minorities because Chinese don't refer to natives or indigenous, they call it minorities. Mm -hmm. So the originary people. They, folk, uh, they were working in the copper 
from over 3,000 years in one area that is still being explored. So we're talking about for 5,000 years, this area called Tonglin is still being explored for the concentration of copper. Wow. Yeah. And so there also there is the isotopic composition or an element, in this case copper, it has a difference between the concentration of the element and the isotopic values. Iso the isotopes are different atoms of the same element. So, in the case of the Chengyan River, in the upper reaches or near the Thai, uh, Tibet Plateau, they have a really a low concentration and really high values, while in the other side of the river, the concentration is very high and the values are very low. So it's like uh, inversely proportional. And there is still the question why this happens. So you have the elements. So in the same similar studies reveal that the crust has higher values, oh, sorry, has lower values Mm -hmm. than the rivers, and the ocean has higher values than the rivers. So it's like okay. it goes to increase to the ocean to have the highest concentration. So you're trying? I'm trying to understand like how this cycle of the carbon works. But also if you ask, for example, if it's about the weathering, it should be related to the Tibet Plateau. She'll have like a really high concentration, right? But if you check other rivers on the side of India, like the Ganges River, if the Brahmaputra, they don't have the, the highest concentration that you can find in copper. So this is like still the question, why this happens? So my research includes some samples from like all over the river, that actually I will be going in a trip from the regions to Shanghai, all over, getting collecting samples from all over the river in China to see like in which in which areas there is like a higher concentration and maybe it could be because of the pollution caused by the cities, if it could be like uh, the relation with the deposits, or we were also collecting some samples like monthly samples from one hydrological station and we can check like how the element concentration or the variations during the different months could be like changed from 12 hours that for the geologists this is like mind-blowing because they are used to have changes in the concentrations in the river water from a specific location and they always talk about millions of years so how is this variation in hours could be happening including like um, elements like uranium that doesn't change that much you've got uh, to answer this million dollar question that people from different fields have been wondering about for a while um and I think from what I understand from your story is that the most fun part of the PhD so far is these field trips that you'll be able to do across China. <laughs> yes. 
So you actually have experience in very different research fields, both in law and in marine science. I wanted to ask you what you think the biggest differences are, right? Are there differences in expectations of your department or maybe in the publishing process um, between law and STEM? Well, I think it will depend of uh, the perspectives. For, for example, like you mentioned, when I was working in disaster risk management and also was working with child affairs, there was a completely two different perspectives. One was under STEAM, the other one was social sciences. However, I tried to mix both of them. It's like, um, for example, how from the side of uh, child affairs can we link to the effects of climate change and the child protection? And also, like how we can involve children to learn more about uh, disaster risk management, like from one side to the other side. So I think, like, as for me, I think the relation between social sciences and STEAM is very close. It just depends on the perspective one wants to provide or one tries to focus in. Because you can link easily both of them. Like, for example, now people are focusing on science communication. Science communication, the way how you approach to the communities to in-reach for the academia, but also outreach. It mm -hmm. shows, like, if you are not able to explain clearly your research in a way like children or civil society understand you're not going to get support from policymakers because they don't understand. You're not going to get support from people. You're not going to get funding to do your research. You need to demonstrate how important STEAM work is by being able to communicate in a way social sciences do. And you need to change that uh, projection to them in a way they will understand. So really the linking of different fields, even though they might sound very, very different, exactly. um, is important and it's important to convey why and, and how you do that and why it's important. That sounds very good. Yeah, it's like you can see now with the COVID, now people are understanding why pandemic it's important, like why vaccinations are important, why you need to start working more on public health because it actually, it's affecting them directly in their daily lives. So before this, not like, well, we saw like how many governments were cutting funds from public health, especially in the area of vaccine or research for this kind of viruses. And now they're getting all the funding that they need. Or probably we will need more, but still, unless something happens or unless you are able to explain yourself clearly, not only for the people that they have certain level of knowledge on what you do, but you are able to share with everyone. Something that, that I always remember when I was in undergrad, there was one particular classmate that said, we, al we always have to explain everything in the way of rice and beans. Like for Costa Ricans, rice and beans is the basic okay. of all our meals. Like literally every meal we have has rice and beans. 
So his way was like, you can try to sound intelligent or you can try to sound or you want to show how much you know and how these fancy words you use. But if you are not actually, like you think you're communicating, but the people are not receiving that information. So unless they are receiving the information you want to provide, um, whatever you're saying is will never be, well, will not be received. Like you think you're being clear, but for them, you they don't understand like half of the things that you do. So they are going to forget or they're going to ignore you eventually. That is what happened with many scientists worldwide. What are the differences in expectations that uh, your fields have or your departments or maybe your supervisor? And what about the publishing process? Mm, well, in the case, in my case, like, uh, for example, I wanted to do be part of a cruise that actually like travels to South China Sea. And I was more interested in that particular area when I was thinking about, for example, I wanted initially to mix my PhD with disaster risk management and they say like uh, there were nobody in our school that actually focused on this unfortunately then yeah so I have to change to archaeology to one basis that it's uh, there is some isotopic studies with heritage and archaeology that I also suggested and they also told me no <laughs> Because I needed to learn a lot about the Chinese history and I was not able to read Chinese traditional uh, writing. So for them, it was not an option either. So they just assigned this topic to me. Now it's exciting, but at the beginning it was very frustrating because I even wanted to go for this cruise in South China Sea because I wanted to involve international law and the conflict between the different countries in that area in the South China Sea disputes mm -hmm. with uh, ocean sciences. But they told me no. So it's quite like, um, it was frustrating. So at the end, it was just like, whatever they say, okay, I will do this. And uh, right now, the exciting part, like you mentioned, is the fieldwork. Yeah, and the topic also grew on you because you're able to explain it and you sound excited about it. So that's a good thing. Yeah, like now for me, it's exciting. It's like, what is this happening? And the initial hypothesis when I started my PhD was that maybe this high concentration or this high values, were the, well, copper values were related to the copper deposits, like uh, Tonglin. That, oh, that area that I was mentioned with really long exploitation evidence. But now uh, we found out that it's actually from the origins because the concentration and the high levels of elements you can find in the Tibet Plateau, so where the river actually starts. Mm -hmm. So for this river in particular from the Jansi, it's considered that starts in like some area in mid-China. It's not 
actually like related to the Tibetan Plateau. It's another river that goes, but it, it's like the, the mother river and the daughter river. What was it like for you to move from Costa Rica to China? First, you started uh, just going out for a job, right? I guess the contract was maybe one or two years. Mm -hmm. One and year. then one year, yeah. So that was what you had in mind. But then you got this offer to stay for the PhD, which is a few years at least. Uh, how was that experience? Well, for me, it was like a huge change because I come from a rural area in Costa Rica. I don't even come from the capital. So my town, it's actually a small valley surrounded by mountains and coffee. Sounds nice. Yes, and um, so when initially when I moved from my town to the university, it was when pretty much the first time that I went to the capital. During my work, I was always traveling around Costa Rica, so I was not much in contact with the city. I went sometimes to the city, but mostly my work was always in the coast areas or the mountains. Then moving to Shanghai was the first time that I actually saw like this in like huge city. Uh, it has some green areas, but for me it was shocking for so many levels. It's like I come from a country where it's five billion people to a small city, relatively small city, where this city is twenty five million people, and it's like. Wow. Like the concentration of people here in comparison to like with my big country, well, not that big, but <laughs> I was trying to compare like 5 million in this area with 25 million in a smaller area was shocking for me. Mm -hmm. Then um, getting used to a lot of changes. China is very innovative, especially Shanghai. Like technology sometimes is mind-blowing. And um, here, like, we don't use cash. Everything is through like uh, online payments. Okay. Then uh, there is like so many conveniences that in Latin America just don't happen. Like you go and everything is fast. Everything is very effective because you have so many people. You need to keep that uh, that continuous stay of uh, working all the time. Like Chinese, they don't stop. And if something don't work, they have to fix it. Wow. Yeah. While in Latin America, if you want to move one paper from one office, 50 <laughs> meters to the other person, it can take months. Wow. No joking. Especially when you, when you are in the public, um, you're part of the government. It's so frustrating when you work there. Right. So you actually managed quite well to get used to these things and to settle down a little bit, even though you almost have to spend two hours back and forth to your place and your working place. Mm -hmm. um, but if you would move to a different country, and in your case, it's, it's two very opposite places, Costa Rica and China, but even different countries, what would you recommend other students to do when they decide to move to another country for their PhDs. What do you think would be helpful to know before you go? I think it's very important that you try to check the etiquette, the social customs before you come. 
because for example a city like Shanghai they you don't understand the language and it's very frustrating because sometimes they you feel they are yelling at you and uh, you get very surprised but it's just like you then you understand it's like no they're as frustrated because they want to communicate with you but they don't know how <laughs> So they raise their voice because they hope yeah, that it exactly. helps. But yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So also, um, like, yeah, first getting used to the differences, especially like language get become, uh, can be like very difficult to manage. The first time that I went to the supermarket and I couldn't understand anything that was there, for me it was like almost, I wanted to go back to my room and cry like I don't know um, anyone I don't understand anyone like what is what is this happening so it's just like for many students it's also like you go to a new place and you don't know anyone you ha you don't have any support system so trying to find a support system before you go it will be ideal like if the university has For example, an international students association that has I finally like realized for mine, it make a huge difference because you start meeting new people that they are also alone. So you start getting like uh, new friends, and you feel related because they are living the same thing that you are living. Uh, under understanding the like cultural differences is important because sometimes you feel frustrated but you need to learn how to manage the frustration and learning the language will be ideal but sometimes it's too difficult in so many levels so i think it will be more like um, try to prepare yourself before you go but also like mentally prepare yourself to know that you're gonna face like a lot of frustration it's gonna be lonely initially but you can you're gonna find a lot of people that they are gonna become your family because sometimes they are alone you're alone so the bond that you start forming with some people here it becomes so strong like a new level of friendship that you're not gonna you don't find before so that sounds hopeful no it's actually like very good and you start learning also from different cultures because understanding the cultural difference is one of the main thing like even if other people are international students it doesn't mean like you they can understand you or you will understand them And for them, it's also difficult. So try to tell them, for example, look, in your culture, it's normal to hug or it's normal to approach people in certain way. But for other cultures or here, it's not seen okay. It's like, for example, if for some guys, they were shocked. Like if they wanted to meet people like their classmates, they came and approached the girls just to ask something. But for the Chinese girls, it was like too invasive. Like, they're scared. Like, okay. if you need to talk to someone, look for the guys, not the girls. At least for them. And 
I remember like this is one of the main issues, for example, some of my African friends had that they, they just wanted to be friendly. They just want to say hi. Mm-hmm. But the other ones, they were receiving it different. So it's like you need to be aware of uh, how your behavior can be seen. So it's not like when you want to project, it's mm-hmm. also how can it be seen. So sometimes it's difficult, but you need to learn to be very self-aware or any action or anything that you do, especially if they don't know you initially. Right, because all of these different things you do and your behavior has meaning uh, in the mm-hmm. country where you're from, but it might have a different meaning in the different setting you're in now. Exactly. Uh, and even though it's not your intention to do something wrong or to hurt someone's feelings, you might by accident. Uh, so it's, it's good to be aware and to find some friends who can help you out and explain why and how. Exactly. Well, time-wise, I think we've already come very much to the end of our talk. And I haven't asked my most important question yet. As you're doing your PhD now, and it will take a little bit more time, but you're working on it and you're enjoying it. Still got some field trips Mm -hmm. coming up. But what are you going to do with that eventually? Do you see yourself going back, working in the field, or do you like to continue in academia Well, I consider Costa Rica to be the place of my, well, my home, the place I want to go back someday or all the time, but I don't see it like the place that I'm going to establish in. Mostly because of different economical conditions and also because there is no real funding for research. There is no work options for many And that's one of the reasons why I left initially. So for me, I think I am valuing like different options, leaving academia because I was outside of academia for a long time, like almost six, seven years before I started Mm -hmm. in China again. Then I consider like, well, I needed to actually, when I came from my fellowship, it was my way to reset myself in academia because I was so far away from like learning, studying again. So I like now my PhD feels back to undergrad, to be honest. Like it's still a process that I'm learning so many new things. And I would like to apply for some postdocs but before I apply for the postdocs, even from now, I'm trying to like, to establish certain criteria because I, now that I'm here, I have found out, for example, not only being a PhD student in an university or related to a university in China, there's so many things that I cannot do because I'm a foreigner. Okay. And this also happens in different countries. So there is certain limitations that you have if depending on your origin and even if you are related to an institution. So for me, I wanted to look over a few universities that I'm very interested in, but I wanted to check if these same conditions happens there. Okay. So I don't I don't want to be in the in the same place again. 
Mm. And uh, I would like to be part of a postdoc. But for me, if I can land a job position in or outside academia, that will be ideal. Okay. So first, a little bit more of academia, preferably the postdoc in a good place. Yeah, of course. But what I realized is I have no publications so far. And if you want to obtain a postdoc or you want to get a postdoc contract or even a job in academia, you need a lot of publications. So when I was doing my master in that time, I didn't got any support to publish mm-hmm. or any guide to publish. Even like uh, during my undergrad, like publishing was not a big deal, but that was over 10 years ago. Now, pretty much... If you don't have a publication or even not, we're not even talking about the impact factors. Publications means the value you have somehow. Or here in China, if you don't publish, you don't graduate. Okay. So you will publish eventually. Yeah. So for me, for example, uh, I have a lot of plans, but... Right now, I have like no much of a guide on how to publish, and eventually, like I will like to start working. And now that I have a lot of data, I know I can publish. But for me, it's still I keep thinking about it. This is I think is one of the biggest issues, or one of the, my main worries about. So, if I want to stay in academia, I need to publish. But also, I have not much of an idea how to publish. Hmm. So, in this kind of issues, it's not even like the money that I need. Are you able to talk to about that with your supervisor? Yeah, but like what I get is the same response that many students get. Just read papers, and if you read papers, you see how they publish, and now you can publish because how you read. Hmm. So there is no guide, there is no support. And uh, sometimes it's frustrating when you see, for example, other professionals in Twitter that they uh, they say like, oh, this is my 30th, my 50th. <laughs> right, there was yeah. one girl, one girl, she said like, oh, this is my 100th publication. I, I don't what? think it's the first one, but I was like, how on earth? <laughs> I Me have zero, she has 100, of that's a pretty crazy amount if you're not very senior at least yeah but uh, it's like very common now even like very young people start their PhDs and they start publishing like right away because now they have the guide like the importance of publications and mostly because now we have the open access before there was not much of an option so yeah I think well, it, it's not like a big limitation. It's like, okay, this is an, as an obstacle that I can go from. Like, I can work with this. It really, in order for you to figure out what it is you're going to do with that, you already know what it is you need to do to get there, which at the moment exactly. is publication. So that's what you're focusing on right now and maybe a little bit less on than what it is exactly you'll do with that. That's fair enough. Yeah. I do want to wrap up with a few more short questions um, mm-hmm. to make a full circle. 
all related to academia. First one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Now, you've switched fields, obviously, so you haven't been in either of them too long, I guess. But you, I did see on your resume that you published something for your other degrees, right? That was related to the law. Uh, not related to law, but I think like one of the main publications that I had was from the evaluation of a big project with the International Federation of the Red Cross, that it was actually going through all the this branch assessment the Red Cross had on the level of Costa Rica. So each brand had to uh, to set like certain level of criteria to be like how well were they operating. And um, my analysis was a uh, national level. So to see like what is the lacking in some regions and how they can improve and, and they, what way they can improve. So I think this was like a big publication because it was shared. This was the first time that uh, something like this was made on the country level. And it was shared along the Federation of the Red Cross. It was kind of open access, and that's what made an impact. Yeah. Right? All right. Next one is, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? The pers- the people that I have always in mind is my family. It's like, um, how much have they accomplished with the little they had? So, and how they have survived and they are still, like my parents, they are still together and they are happy. So it gives me like, mostly my dad always said, it's like, you get a title, okay, you have a master, that's just a piece of paper. You get a PhD, that's still a piece of paper. Like the kind of person you are, it's what is important. And how you start behaving and how you are with other people, it's always what is important. So... I think the two people that has influenced me more in my life are my parents. That's very nice. And it sounds like good advice. (laughs) All right. Then my very last question is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? For me, it's just like coming back to my room. Maybe like play a movie or something or just make some music. It, it depends about how much stress do I have and I how I want to get free from it. Like as Latina, sometimes the kind of music just like helps you to like release a lot of energy. Even if you're not dancing, it's like, I like this song. For me, this is it. And just, um, yeah, just chilling like, Maybe I will make tea or something that I learned here in China. Now I get addicted to warm water because <laughs> I guess for Chinese, warm water is the solution of the world peace and all diseases are <laughs> healed from it. So just having a tea or something hot, just playing a movie or just listening to music and just sit down and relax, like just like breathe out. I'm not good in meditation because I, I tend to be an overthinker, but it's just yeah. just trying to like let all the stress to leave my body and focus on if I can get like a face mask or something to mm-hmm. feel like I'm taking care of myself, that will be important. 
but uh, yeah in general it's it's like a disconnecting and like the moment that I come back home it's like okay this is my disconnecting I'm not reading anymore I'm not doing this I'm not doing it I'm not gonna focus anything on academia this is my time for myself that's it that sounds very healthy good job all right well thank you so much Anna for taking the time to talk with me today I'd also like to thank the audience for listening to another episode and don't forget to follow us on social media to see who our upcoming guest is and while you're at it please subscribe and let us know what you think of the podcast I thought that maybe Anna you were going to say watching scary movies <laughs> to relax No because I already have watched so many uh, like all the scary movies in um, in Netflix so now I, I need to look for other options Okay <laughs>